you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. A reading from the Old Testament comes from Genesis chapter 24. We'll start in verse 52 and read to the end of the chapter, which is through verse 67. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Berlachai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 4. Matthew 4. We'll read verses 23 through 25. This is God's word. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon us. Almighty Father, eternal and Infinite God, what a wonder that you have spoken unto us. What a wonder that you have made yourself known in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
What a wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared healing, boundless in compassion and tenderness. We ask as we consider your word that you would exalt yourself in the beloved Son as we stand in awe of the excellencies of his wisdom, the excellencies of his power, the excellencies of his mercy and compassion. Make us to receive of his bounty, O Lord. Refresh us as only you can and as you delight to do in the exaltation of the king whom you have seated at your right hand in the kingdom which knows no end. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I wish it happened less. I wish when I asked people if they've read Anna Karenina, they'd stop saying, I've seen the movie. <laughs> I imagine it's similar to uh, literature professors. Perhaps we can ask Dr. Balkin. Um, to students who say, oh, I've not read the book, but I've read the cliff notes. <laughs> I've read the summary of the book. And we arrogant professors sort of turn our nose down at such things and scoff, partly to make ourselves feel better, maybe to feel you, make you feel a little worse. We're sinful. <laughs> because the truth is, there is some use in summaries. I would recommend reading Anna Karenina and not watching the movie, but if you've seen the movie, you have a decent idea. But the general characters, the nature of the plot, some of the themes, I think they bungled that terribly, but you get the idea. <laughs> Summaries can be really useful because they orient you to the big picture of something, which sometimes can be lost in the details. <laughs> Matthew here gives us a summary of our king and his ministry. He's going to go on and he's going to give us lots of details about this very summary, but it's almost as if he's saying, don't miss this. <laughs> don't miss the forest for the trees. We're going to look at the trees. The trees are remarkable. He's going to heal the lame and he's going to heal the blind and you're going to get all of these wonderful exchanges. He's going to instruct about this matter and that matter. And you're going to get this remarkable wisdom on display, but don't lose the big picture that he came to teach, that he came to announce that he came to heal. And in so doing, he reveals something of himself as king, and he reveals something of the nature of this kingdom. Because when Jesus reveals something about who he is, or what he does, we can be sure that he's still these things, and he's still doing these things, because he is the same yesterday, today, and always. But we can also be sure that we need these things because he is and he does exactly what we need him to do as sinners who are lost and dying. And that's the nature of the kingdom that he reveals here. Don't lose that even in the midst of this summary. He comes instructing and proclaiming. Thus he comes dealing in the blessing of truth. 
And he also comes healing. And so he comes dealing in the blessing of life. Near the heart of Christ and his kingdom is the gift of truth and life. Those choice blessings that no man can manufacture. That must come from God. Or to use John's terminology, the light and the life of man has appeared. And he gives light and life, those choice blessings. And so we see here in Christ presenting himself as one who ministers truth and life in his instructing, in his announcing, and in his healing. And we are reminded that we are so desperately in need of truth and life as only he can give us. So let's consider this king who gives these choice gifts freely and to the glory of his father. So first... Mark that the Lord teaches us. And mark that that means we're ignorant. <laughs> so first, teaching the ignorant. Matthew tells us, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. From the beginning of time, students have sought out teachers. Teachers have gathered unto themselves students. I remember when I was looking at potential programs to study in, everyone was flocking to this or that scholar that they wanted to study under. So popular were some of these scholars that they actually had to post notices on the department page, no longer accepting applicants, <laughs> not currently accepting students. That seems smug to me. <laughs> Especially in the light of the fact that the Lord turns aside no students. The Lord turns aside no one who would learn at the feet of the one who is the wisdom of God, who is the light of the world. This is wonderful news because he willingly teaches. He willingly instructs. And not only that, the matter that he teaches of his, is of eternal significance. And Matthew doesn't say that explicitly here, but he does say that implicitly. Because he tells us where Jesus does his teaching. He teaches in their synagogues. Well, what is he teaching in their synagogues? Well, in a phrase, he's teaching the truth of God. He's expounding for them the revelation of who God is as he's made himself known in his holy word and in the fullness of time in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they did in the synagogues, week in and week out. They would turn their attention to God's word. Recall that episode in Luke 4. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ appears in their synagogue? It's the commencement of his public ministry, and he takes the scroll, and he reads from Isaiah, and then he sits down, because that's what you did when you were a teacher, because they loved teachers more than they do now. <laughs> You sat down and everybody stood up and the one seated is the one in authority and he's explaining to them out of his authority what these things really mean. And so Jesus tells them what that text really meant. Indeed, what all the texts really meant, what they taught and they taught Jesus. <laughs> That's what he said today in your hearing. This word is fulfilled. 
The servant anointed with the Spirit to proclaim the good news unto captive, the salvation that God had promised from long ago. You're watching it unfold in your midst. These scriptures point to me. So not only is it lovely that the Lord Jesus Christ freely teaches, it's wonderful that he instructs us in those matters that are of utmost importance. And this he does freely. Christ teaches us from God's word about the salvation which God delights to work to the glory of his name in his beloved son. Now this is wonderful news. Even just at a practical level, have you had this experience? You sit down with the Bible, you read, and you think, I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. I understand all of the individual words. I can even make some sense of the sentences, but what it's instructing me in, I do not understand. Or even if I do understand something of this, how on earth am I supposed to live by faith in the light of this? But here Jesus assures us that he himself delights to instruct us in those very things. So even just as a simple encouragement to you as you open your word, pray that prayer that David prayed, open my eyes, O Lord, that I may see wonders in your word. And know that Jesus teaches us and that he delights to teach us. In my house, it's not uncommon to hear questions being yelled out of a random nature from tiny, squeaky voices. Everything is calm and everyone's doing their own thing until all of a sudden you hear, Mom! How do you spell catch? (laughs) Or, Mom! What's six minus two? (laughs) Children, do you ask these types of questions to your parents? Mom, what's this? What's that? What does this mean? What does that mean? It's such a good gift to have parents given by God to be able to teach you in all sorts of things. But where do you go if you want to learn about God? Mom, who's, who's God? Where do you go if you want to learn about sin? Mom, pastor talks about sin a lot. What, what's sin? Where do you go if you want to learn about forgiveness and eternal life? Mom, where do I know those things? Well, you can ask your mom and your dad, and it's wonderful that he's given you Christian parents who are training you in these things. You can ask your pastor. You know God's given me to you to help you understand these things. But even as you go to your mom, even as you go to your dad, we're told to go to Jesus. We're told to ask him. Children, did you know that you can ask him? You can say... Dear Jesus, can you, can you teach me about God? D- dear Jesus, can, can you teach me about sin? D- dear Jesus, can, can you teach me what it means that I need to be forgiven? Because not only does God's word assure us that he delights to teach, but he also assures us that he delights to welcome children. Some might say you, you, you got to be old enough to talk to Jesus. Jesus says, that's ridiculous. You can talk to me. Ask me these things. 
and you can know that he hears you. Just like your mom or your dad or your teacher at school teach you how to read and to write and to do sums, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us how to know God and to live as his children. And this is a good and precious gift. But we can actually say more about this teacher, and we'll have lots of occasion to do so as we see how and what he teaches. But here, let's mark that not only does he teach that most excellent subject, God and his salvation, but he's also the most excellent teacher who ever lived. Now, children, I know a lot of you have your mom as your teacher, and so that's a controversial statement. But I assure you, even as wonderful as your mom is, Jesus is even more wonderful. First, we can mark that Jesus is a gentle teacher. This is what Jesus himself wants us to know as we consider learning from him. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly and you will find rests for your souls. I can remember trying to find an academic advisor and there would be reports that swirled about this or that scholar and say, yeah, he, he's a wonderful scholar, but he's a bit tough. He's a bit idiosyncratic. <laughs> Many great scholars don't know a lick about teaching, you'll find. <laughs> But every now and then you would catch whiff of someone who not only was an excellent scholar, but was also an excellent educator. The Lord Jesus Christ is an excellent teacher. And perhaps chief among his excellencies is that he's approachable. I don't know if you've ever approached an authority on a matter, perhaps a boss at work or a scholar in your field. I find it's rather an intimidating process. Recently, I had an exchange with a very well-known New Testament scholar, and it took me much longer than I care to admit to write that email. <laughs> because you feel intimidated. Not so with the Lord. Consider the wonder of that. The one through whom all things were made, the very wisdom of God says, look, you don't need to be afraid. <laughs> Come here. I'm gentle. I'm lowly. I'll instruct, I'll show you. I delight to show you. He is a gentle teacher. He's also an all-wise teacher. As excellent as some of the scholars that I have met are, <laughs> there's a lot they don't know. <laughs> it's one of the great secrets in the academy. Most people don't know anything. <laughs> There's a saying, I'm sure I've used it before, when you get your bachelor's degree, you think you know everything. When you get your master's, you realize you don't know anything. When you get your PhD, you realize nobody knows anything. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ knows everything. One of the marks, one of the, ne the necessities of being a good teacher is knowing your subject, knowing what you're talking about. You have some control, some facility with the matters you're trying to impart to others. What doesn't he know? The Lord Jesus Christ, infinite in wisdom, the very wisdom of God, the exact image of the invisible God. Mark the excellencies of this teacher and consider the fact that he has come to instruct us in matters of 
unseen things, who God is, what this unseen realm is, what man's true condition is, and the gift of forgiveness and righteousness and hope. He can teach these things because he knows these things. Who can instruct on the matters above, if not the man who came down from above? So says John's gospel. And last, he's an all-powerful teacher. As excellent as a teacher is, there's no guarantee that you successfully teach. Am I wrong? There's no guarantee, as excellent as you may be as an instructor, there is no guarantee you achieve your objectives to instruct. Not so with the Lord. Because he not only knows his subject matter perfectly, but knows those to whom he teaches perfectly and gives of the spirit which makes all things known as only he can, he is successful in his teaching operation. Beloved, there is no teacher like the Lord Jesus Christ in that he is approachable in that he is perfect in knowledge, and in that he is able to teach even the ignorant. And we can close this section by asking, where does Christ teach us? He sets himself forth as a teacher here. We made the point that what he does then, he continues to do now. So where does he teach? And there's one sense in which the entirety of life is the school of Christ. Is that not true? That everything that befalls us is being marshaled by the Holy Spirit as evidence of his faithfulness, as evidence of our need, as evidence as of Christ's excellencies. And so in a general sense, we say he teaches us everywhere. He's instructing us on our beds and not at night as we're rehearsing his word. He's instructing us in the morning as we reflect upon the mercies that are new morning by morning. But there is this more narrow sense which is important, and it's that he continues to instruct us in this capacity in his church, where he has set up ministers. This is exactly what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Paul here envisions this ongoing teaching ministry of Christ, which is going to characterize the entirety of time until he returns. Is that how you approach church? How do you come here to receive of God's word morning by morning, evening by evening? Is it another sermon to be critiqued? Or is it to receive of instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ, who even though he is ascended into glory, a glory that would, by the way, blind us, a glory that would dissolve our hearts, just as it did Peter's and James and John's, consider how disoriented they were when they beheld Christ in glory, even then on the Mount of Transfiguration. Consider the beloved apostle's response when he beheld Jesus raised in glory in John's apocalypse. Fell. Not exactly able to learn in that moment. 
So consider the fact that he's veiled his teaching through the weakness of ministers as a kindness to you. So that we may know that even though he is exalted as the Lord of glory, his heart continues gentle and lowly. It's a shame that we seize upon the weak vessel as an occasion to rise up and pry. Oh, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. He didn't say it exactly like I would have said it. Seizing upon the weakness that Christ extends to you as a kindness so that you don't dissolve in the face of who he really is. That seems to me to be inappropriate. How do you appear here? Is it another thing to be critiqued? Or is it something to receive of as a desperate sinner in need of instruction? Those are two fundamentally different hearts. Let me charge you, Christians. Come before Christ each week in meekness. Just as James instructs, receive the implanted word in meekness, which is able to save your souls. Second, our Lord preaches. Not only does he teach, but he also preaches. Matthew goes on, says, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And here we can make a distinction between teaching and preaching. Matthew makes that distinction. He says that he goes about teaching in synagogues, but he also goes about preaching or proclaiming or announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming is a different mode than teaching. It's not that there's a different content that's being set forth. But rather, it's a different presentation. It's a different mode of that content. You probably know that gospel means good news. If you didn't formerly, now you do. <laughs> gospel means no good news. And the specific backdrop of good news being brought by a messenger is the context of war. You can imagine a city that hears of an advancing army. And they watch in terror as all of the able-bodied men are led forth by their king to defend them against that advancing army. It's a terrifying prospect, is it not? Because they know that their very life depends upon that victory because they are utterly vulnerable, now devoid of an army and of a king. I don't care for the Lord of the Rings movies anymore. But in the two towers, they do manage to capture this moment quite well. If you remember in Helm's Deep, the king and his men are nearly defeated. They're driven back to this last stronghold. And brilliantly, the camera pans to the women and the children that are hiding in these caves. And you see this paper-thin wall that is between these helpless women and children and monsters. And you feel something of how important it is that these men hold out. It's a terrifying moment, is it not? The vulnerability of that moment. There's almost nothing between them and a, face wor a fate worse than de death. That's the context into which good news comes. Hearts that are terrified. Hearts that are on the cusp of a fate worse than death. And then good news, victory, 
they've won. Somehow, Theoden King and Gandalf and these men from the West, they, they've won. No, it's not death, it's, it's life. You, you, you were going to die and now you're going to live and not just live, but thrive. <laughs> because they've won. That's not something to be debated. That's not something to be quabbled over. That's something to be proclaimed and delighted in. And that's what he came announcing. Victory. So we can, we can mark a couple of distinctives that mark preaching. Preaching comes to hearts struck with fear. Those are the hearts that are prepared to receive of the announcement of the victory of the kingdom. The preparatory work of God's grace that he does in the law. You can think of uh, Christian's early stages in Pilgrim's Progress where he's inconsolable. He's read in this book, this city is going to be destroyed. I'm an inhabitant of this city. I'm inconsolable. His wife, his children go to sleep. Nightmares, terrors. He wakes up. How are you? I'm worse. It's to a heart like that, prepared by the hard grace of God's law, that the excellent grace of the announcement of the gospel rings forth as dew, light, and life. We can also mark that preaching declares things with authority. We've got a real problem with authority, don't we? We don't like absolute statements. Well, let me offend you. Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. End of conversation. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. End of conversation. Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. End of conversation. Jesus Christ welcomes in full all those who come to him in faith. End of conversation. And if you are outside of him, you are in a dreadful state indeed. End of conversation. There's a time and a place to declare, to proclaim, to state plainly. And Jesus did that very thing. And he does so as the authority. He announces the good news of the kingdom as the king. He announces the victory over sin the devil and the world as the one who has conquered them. Well, how can he announce that here? This is early. <laughs> how can he announce the gospel of victory over those things pre-cross? It's because the victory has already commenced. He's already went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the world. Do you remember? Herod marshaled the full power of the world against him. But as Pastor King reminded us poignantly, Herod died. Jesus lives. <laughs> he already went toe-to-toe -to -toe with sin. As those sin-filled waters of John's baptism sought to drown him. And yet he rose and was welcomed by the light of heaven. He already went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil as the devil marshaled all of his arsenal against him. Fears, doubts, pleasures, and Christ succeeded in each combat and was able to say, away from me. He can announce victory here because victory has already begun. 
He's already begun conquering the world, the flesh, and the devil, such that the announcement of victory is not some vain hope, but a reality which he's already begun to usher in. And so he can say, are you afraid of the world? These kingdoms that keep bumping into each other? That keep trying to squash out light? Yeah, they tried to do that to me when I was a baby. I beat them as a baby. Now I have all authority in heaven and on earth. You can come to me. Good news. They don't win. I do. You squashed by the fear of sin? Somehow you think he's going to know that you're worse than you've led everybody else to believe you are? He says, I was in those foul waters as the spotless lamb. Worse, I was hung upon a cross. I know the heinousness of your sin better than you do. And it didn't win. I won. Victory over sin. Come to me. Find your fears relieved. The devil, this mysterious figure that haunts us still, he goes where I tell him to go. You can go this far and no further. Come to me. Victory is mine. I assure you, I bring good news. He doesn't just teach. He declares authoritatively. But Mark also, that means he's interested in relieving our fears. Because the heart that is racked by fear oftentimes needs an authoritative word. An authoritative assurance, an outside voice that says, look, I understand you're afraid, but I've won. Rejoice, Christian, for I've taken care of everything. Come to me, and I assure you, you'll be safe. He's interested in relieving our deepest fears, the fears that are introduced by this tumultuous world. The fears that are introduced by sin, the fears that are introduced by this foe and his henchmaiden, the devil, death. He alone can dispel these things. Come to him. He announces that victory has been won, and he proves that he has the authority to do it. And he does this also by healing all of our sickness. That's what we see last. The Lord heals. He not only teaches and preaches, but he heals. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people is going to be one of the most astonishing features of our Lord's earthly ministry. He heals with a touch. <laughs> Even his person heals. The woman reached out to him. And life took hold of her body where death previously reigned. All sorts of illnesses, even demon possession. It's worth noting here that this sort of standard interpretation that the ancients mistook demon possession for epilepsy is very plainly debunked here because he differentiates between epilepsy and demon possession. Additionally, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to send epilepsy into a herd of pigs. They're not as unsophisticated as we think they are. Matthew here is demonstrating that the Lord Jesus Christ has an authority into that invisible realm, which is very mysterious to us. I mean, Mark, even the mysteriousness of health, 
how one day you're looking at a fully healthy man and the next day a diagnosis with cancer. I experience this more often than I care to admit. One day my back is fine and then my back decides no longer to be fine. This is a mystery to me. There's no correlation even between what I was doing and how I'm feeling. This realm of the unseen aspect of man's existence is strange. Jesus says, it's under my authority. All of it. All of it is there. The Lord Jesus Christ came as a healer. The king comes to heal. Now just mark how different this king is. The kings of old surrounded themselves only with those who were full of beauty and life. If you were an ancient Near Eastern king, you had servants and a harem. And they were the epitome of beauty and life. <laughs> they were well fed. They were pleasant to the eye. They had no disease. That's what Nebuchadnezzar did when he pillaged the Judean youth, remember? It's said specifically of Daniel and the lads that there was no blemish to be found in them. They were the epitome of life. Why? Because they were going to stand in the court of the king and he was going to admit nothing unsightly into his presence. It's the same with uh, Xerxes when Vashti showed him up. He had to find a new wife. He said, well, just give me any middling looking woman. No, he said, I want the most beautiful woman conceivable because I want the fullness of beauty and life in my presence. That's the kings of earth. They admit of nothing unsightly, nothing of death into their presence. They deceive themselves because they know not their heart. But mark this king. He welcomes the unsightly and makes them whole. He welcomes those who bear death in their body and he heals them. There's this beautiful scene until we have faces where the people are starving and dying and they're beating on the castle's walls and the two princesses look to their father and he's like, I don't want anything to do with them. Keep them out. Send out the guard. But the one princess, Psyche, says, I'll go to them. Let, let me go out to them. And they, she goes out and she begins distributing food. And it's said that even as she touched them, they were healed. And the people marveled at her because here was royalty, the likes of which they had never seen. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his excellency. This is his glory. He does not say, come unto me, ye who are whole. He says, come unto me, none are whole, and I will make you whole. Only I can. That's the loveliness of the king as healer sets on display. But it does raise a question, doesn't it? Does our king still heal in this way? He still teaches. He still proclaims. Does he still heal in this way? Well, the answer to that specific question is no. But if you want to reframe the question, then the answer is yes. No, in that Scripture is plain that this extraordinary period of miracles attended Christ's earthly ministry and the apostolic ministry. Paul and Peter engaged in many of these same miracles. If you read the book of Acts, they're able to command health, essentially. 
They were able to raise the dead. But then they already anticipate that things are going to start to change. Paul writes to Timothy as he prepares the church to live beyond that extraordinary apostolic age. He says, no longer drink water, but take a little wine for your stomach. Well, just heal my stomach, Paul. <laughs> Why not just heal me? There was an understanding that these miracles, this outpouring of an extraordinary power served a specific purpose. And that purpose was twofold. One, to prove the message that these men brought. To demonstrate the veracity, the truth of what they were declaring about God and about sin and about what he came to do. But also to instruct us that our true need is not physical healing. Our true need is from the healing of the sickness of sin. That's the point that Jesus makes in Matthew 9. Do you recall this episode? A paralytic is brought to him. And what does he say? He says, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. What an astonishing gift that is. <laughs> but just like that, my debt is cleansed. I'm welcomed with God just like that. He had received the choicest gift Christ could give. And they grumbled. And what did they grumble about? You, you can't do that. You, you can't do that. Yeah. Only God can do that. So what does he do? He says, so that you know that I can do this, here, get up and go home. He does the lesser miracle to prove that he has the authority to do the greater. Christ alone can heal from sin. That is not a lesser work. That is a greater work. If you think you would rather have the lesser, you have yet to understand the plight of the former. Christ does continue to heal in this way. He's the only one who can heal in this way. God's common grace has abounded in that many diseases which formerly would have led to certain death have been healed. And he's given this gift very broadly. In our very midst, a man received a diagnosis that should have led to death, and it didn't. Praise God. Praise God for his common grace. But even if it had, that man had already received the greater blessing. The blessing which Christ came to proclaim, which he alone can authoritatively give. The blessing of forgiveness and welcome with the holy God. The blessing not just of biological life. The blessing of eternal life, which belongs to the Son of Man to give. And which he gives freely to those who come to him. Man cannot heal sin. Man cannot heal death. Try as he might. But there is one who can. This healer, this teacher, this herald. And so mark our need, beloved. Mark your ongoing need. Your need for instruction in the truth which can only come from him.
Your need for the assurance which can only come through the proclamation that the king himself makes, though he makes it through messengers. And your need for the healing touch of life, which overcomes sin and death, which can only come from his hand. So I plead with you, come to him not as skeptic or critic, Come to him as one who is desperately needy. And then be assured he delights to give what we need. Join me in prayer. Mm -hmm. Almighty Father, bless us as we receive of your word. Posture us aright that we may receive of its riches. Help us, O Lord, in all of our maladies, ignorance and fear and sin, to behold your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ and thus to abound in confidence towards you and your purposes extended unto us in our King, our Savior, and our God. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.